Welcome to the Check Your Ed Podcast, the podcast where notable musicians and experts share their stories and solutions for mental health and wellness. I'm your host, Mari Fong, a music journalist and life coach for musicians, and we are in September, a month that represents a lot of what the Check Your Head podcast is about. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, but it's also National Recovery Month, National Self-Care Awareness Month, and National Self-Improvement Month, which leads us to our featured musical guest, who seems to touch on all those things. Today's guest is a rising singer-songwriter, born in the Philippines, but grew up in a tough, crime-filled neighborhood in Sydney, Australia, with a painful childhood caused by an ugly divorce between his parents. Pouring anger and sadness into his music, Camp Carter wrote his single Relapse as he struggled with addiction and depression, a song that he wrote to end his life, but actually ended up saving his life. Cap Carter will share his solutions for recovery, and we'll play a clip of Relapse at the end of our episode. Next, we have a mental health expert who speaks on the topic of loneliness. Loneliness that we could feel during dark times, loneliness that could happen on tour, and loneliness experienced during this pandemic. Today's expert is Kat Moore, who built a career on teaching others how to make lasting friendships and is USC's first director of belonging. Kat guides us on how to make these lasting connections, along with the five things we can all do to create meaningful relationships. But first, let's hear singer-songwriter Cap Carter share his story. You were born in the Philippines, but you grew up in Sydney, Australia, Mm. and you dropped your single Relapse. With Relapse, you said you wrote that during one of the darkest periods of your life, and you said the song was almost like an exit song. Now, what did you mean by that, an exit song? I meant that in the way of <clears throat> that I couldn't see a way out, um, mm-hmm. struggling with depression. I'd just come off a band, a pretty, a pretty bad band breakup, and I had, now looking back, delusions of, of grandeur with the band and thinking that, hey, you know, we could make it. And then the band broke up. My life fell apart. I took it as the universe's way of saying, you're done. Mm-hmm. You're done with music. You know, something that I've been chasing for the last oh, 15 years. And I took it to heart. I took it really bad. Went to a dark space. So I wrote this song, Relapse, really as a way of saying, this is, this is it. You know, struggling with the ideation of, of suicide at the time. And, and it was supposed to be my last song. Really? Yeah. So that was like almost a goodbye note or something or Yeah. It's quite heavy. Yeah, heavy. <laughs> it's quite heavy. <laughs> it's real heavy. heavy. What was it that kept you from doing that? Looking back at the time, I had a friend reach out, a friend who did not know what I was going through. I, I didn't know how to tell people what was really going on inside, you know, like, uh, I just couldn't, I just couldn't bring myself to do that. But this friend reached out, not even to check up on me. He was just like, look, do you, do you want to record some music? I got some free uh, studio time. And I was just like, you know what, let's do it. I got this one song. Little did he know uh, what I was really meaning was I got this one last song. Uh, and so we recorded the song and then we posted it up three years ago and, and started to resonate with people. And we started to get messages. I started to get messages of people who, who saying that the song helped. And it was like 30, 40,000 views overnight, which was nice as you know, an independent artist coming up at that time. It was nice to know that maybe that there was some sort of purpose to things happening. And, uh, and I think that's what kept me a sense of, a sense of purpose. And over time, the arrows, the arrows started pointing out. I think when the arrows start pointing out, when you're in such a dark headspace, you you can start you can start to see things clearer. But when the arrows start pointing out, that's where that's when I saw a light. That's an interesting way of putting it. The arrows started to point out. It almost sounded like you were guided out, or you know that there was some sort of intuitive messages that you were getting that said you are here for a reason, and your music is. It's healing you, but it's healing other people because they're starting to feel and sense these emotions that are coming out. And oftentimes when you're in that place, you feel really alone. So what was it that you feel was sort of guiding you? Yeah, I mean, the backstory to this is 
that my mum actually taught me to love music at a young age in the Philippines and then growing up in Sydney. But her and dad had this ugly, ugly divorce, and it just put a, a, a lot of、um, insecurity in my life. So music for me is, is very much intertwined with, with mum. And so when mum left, that was like, you know, there's there's already dis,、uh, there's already abandonment there. But then when music left, I was just like, holy crap! What what is there to live for now? So, so going back to the question, I I, I feel like. I feel like purpose is is huge. You know, I, I saw a purpose in helping people. You know, I saw that the music was was reaching and touching. We, we used to get really, really heavy messages, or we still do.、Um, people who who were struggling with their mental health and also wanted to exit. You know, wanted to leave. And I heard that the song was like a was like a strong arm that it reached out to them and hugged them. I kept me going. <laughs> So、that's amazing. Now, can you remember some of the messages that you got from listeners? What were they saying? Yeah, um, to, to, to my, I, it's both a strength and a weakness, I think, for me. But I'm a big empath, so I feel it strongly when someone slides into those DMs and says, "Like, dude, I, I wanted to take my life, and then I heard your song, and it gave me hope." I found a light along the way. I listened to all your tracks, but there's one message actually that has stood out, and this person was saying how they were struggling at the time with ideation of suicide and addiction, and me not being a mental health professional, all I did was say, "Dude, so much to live for. Go and get professional help." This person came back about three months later and didn't reply to my message at all. Like you know that initial message, he came back three months later and he said. I just wanted to let you know I took your advice, and I'm on my last day at my rehab program. I'm 180 days clean, and、uh, you know I'm living my best life. And and that to me was just like wow, man. People really do listen. People really do. You know, if people are looking for hope, if people are looking for some sort of light, you can be that as an artist and as, as a musician. So I, I I screenshotted that, and it's just a reminder. Why, as a mus- musician, I create. Well, thank you for <laughs> writing that song. You know, it's amazing though how words and emotion given to somebody else can help heal them. And oftentimes,、yeah. we're not even thinking about it when that happens. Yeah. But you know, you were talking about your parents when they got divorced, and you were、mm-hmm. a mere ten years old. <laughs> and and oftentimes, being a child. You have a different perspective on what that could mean, and sometimes kids will take responsibility for something that really has nothing to do with them, like a divorce.、Yeah. Did you have any residual feelings after your mother left? Oh, one hundred percent. I'm still going through it as a man. You know, like I um, I didn't understand what was going on, and I didn't understand why it was that I needed to to stay with dad. So the context of this is, I have three of us in the family. I got two older sisters, and and my mum made the decision to leave my dad, and she left, but she wanted to keep me and wanted to take me. And my dad was saying, "No, if she's leaving this marriage and this household, then everyone stays." And I didn't understand that as a kid, but I was angry. I was angry at my father, you know. And the story is, my mum ran off with another man. And and at that time, if I could go back and change things, and 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 as a ten year old, I, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know that you know, mum decided to do this. I, I just I was just like, why can't I go with mum? And that would have broke my dad's heart as well. I think you know, seeing his only boy, you know, not taking his side in in that matter. But I often look back and 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 tell myself, if if I could go back, I'd I'd make sure that dad knew that. I understood, or if I could go back, I could. I, I'd want to hold his hand and say, "No,、nah, like, you know, she's she's left the both of us. We can move on together." You know, because it, it left a real large gap between my dad and I, which I'm still trying to fix and and, and with, which I'm still trying to process. So yeah, you know, there's a lot of residue that comes with that. Yeah, that I think rubs off on my music. It does because you know musicians express those emotions through their music. And their lyrics、yeah. that oftentimes you might feel more comfortable 
singing about it versus mm. even talking about it with a therapist or something. And, you know, sharing that with the world really helps so many people. What I think is interesting is that you were talking about rage against your father, but mm. I sense this closeness that you have with your mother, but yeah. it doesn't sound like you have the rage against your mother at all, even though she left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's really weird like that because I've, you know, I've, I've had fans actually question that and say, you know, she left. What? Why do you not feel any animosity uh, towards her? And I guess it's because over the years. So my dad was in the navy, and 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 not to stereotype people in the navy at all, but he he experienced a few things, and it, and it closed him off emotionally. Mm. And growing up in his household, there was no affirmation no nothing like i'm proud of you you've done a good job you know when you're when you're a teenager when you're growing up it's just like that's all you crave for you want to know that you've you can be validated by your parents and i didn't have that but my mum, even though she left was so constant through the years on a message on a phone call and it, and it tells you that at that age that was all i was wanting i just needed someone to tell me that everything was going to be okay so for the next almost 15 years of my life living with dad it never came. But now that I'm a man, I'm going through this whole healing and I'm, and you know, I'm in recovery and I'm in rehab. It, my dad and I, I'm quite closer to him now, which is the tables have turned, which is crazy, which is a, a crazy, it's almost like we've come full circle, you know? Well, what was the turning point with your father? Well, I checked myself into rehab six months ago and, and I experienced a lot of loss in life. And, I was talking to my sisters and, and my sister's questions were always like, well, when are you going to patch things up with dad? And I used to get so defensive over that. And, he, and I always asked them, well, when, he's, when is he going to patch things up with me? <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny how sometimes pain can humble us. It's, it's, it's funny how pain can humble us enough to ask for help. And the one person that I asked for help from when, when I checked myself into rehab was, was my father. And something clicked. I think something clicked in him where it was just like, well, if I don't offer help or if, I, if, if we don't get close now, we'll, we never will get close. And, you know, it's, it's quite touching now that we're having dinners together and we're going fishing together. It's, it's like, I feel like he's gained his son back and I, and I found my father again, you know, even, even in the midst of a lot of heartache and loss in the last six months. So, it's kind of bittersweet, but it would definitely feel like we've come full circle. I'm yeah. so glad to hear that. Well, you know, you touched on rehab mm. and you touched on your depression and suicidal ideation, which is really the depths of it. With the addiction, where did the addiction start and what was it that you were addicted to? Um, after, after six months of rehab, I'm still in rehab, I'm, I'm, I'm doing an outpatient, so it's just via Zoom, but the addiction I've realized started with childhood trauma when mum left. Hmm. That's, that's a great segue question because, uh, I mean, we, we touched on how mum left, but, it, but through those years, I learned how to use people and substances to escape um, these feelings of, of loneliness, to escape these feelings of purposelessness and and that's how it grew. That's how addiction grew in my life. But yeah, like what I've learned about addiction, my personal journey with addiction and recovery is that it's an illness of, of escape. And that's a powerfully loaded statement because there's, there's two, it's like there's two statements in one is that addiction one is, is an illness and it needs to be treated professionally. And in doing so, it could be managed. It could be managed. And then two is that it's escapism at its root. You know, you're, you're not just running to using, but you're running from something. So I've learned that over the last six months that I've been running from trauma almost my whole life, which is crazy. <laughs> well, first of all, you are very brave to talk about this as you're going through your process and the rehab because it's still really fresh to you. 100%, but yeah. Yes, but at the same time, you could really share honestly about what it is to go through that. I mean, we've had Emilio Castillo from Tower of Power on the podcast and he was addicted. He, he admitted to so many different things. He said he took everything, everything <laughs> under the sun. 
And I think it was the alcohol that finally he thought he was just going to die from it. But he started a 12-step program when he found one person that was as bad of an addict that he was. And they were able to get out. He said, you know what? That gave me hope. They gave me hope that there is a door to get out. And what was yours? What was your door? What was my door? I I think for me, I think for me, the door to to get out is um, wanting to see the best version of me. And again, that that goes back to purpose. You know, believing that I'm here for a reason, that I'm not just dust blowing in the wind, that my life isn't just a, you know coming and going, that 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 I can leave a mark whilst I'm here. And I'm also in a 12-step program. And one of the things I'm learning in a 12-step program is that the fullness of recovery is is experienced um, in servitude, you know, that you understand that by serving others, by putting others before yourself, perhaps you need to give your life away, you know, like make another person's life better, you know, make make something of, of your recovery by helping others. And, and, and that goes back to this purpose that I was talking about. You know, everything for me points to like, there is a reason why this has happened. You know, there is a reason why, why you've gone down this route, you know? So the door for me is wanting to see the best version of myself and seeing to it that I live my life's purpose. You know, usually there's a situation or an event or even a thought that makes you say, you know what? I've got to go to a rehab now. Or maybe it was against your will. What was the whole situation that finally got you into therapy? Yeah, this is a big one. Um, Marriage breakdown. My own. Yeah, it it fell apart. And I'm still going through it. That's something that I'm still trying to process, trying to process separation and trying to process recovery is huge. is a huge thing for me. And, And some days are better than others, but... To wake up in the morning and not have the love of your life there anymore is 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 t- was tough, and it was mm-hmm. it got to a point where it was just like, yeah, it got to a point where it was just like I, I needed to do something and real quick. Was the addiction part of that whole breakdown of your relationship? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. I I do understand that there's a lot of things that come to play, and I understand that you don't blame the addiction. Um, but I do believe that whilst addiction gives us a reason for acting out, it doesn't give you excuses. So I do know that there's a lot of other factors that come to play, but I can hand on my heart say that, you know, there are a lot of things that I did in active addiction that caused the, the breakdown of uh, my marriage. Well, I think also when you are on a, a substance, whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, and You've got to the point of addiction, your behavior and your thoughts change and you become a person that maybe you don't recognize or your partner doesn't recognize. And, and that can be scary for both people, right? When you're saying things or doing things that are out of character. Yeah, definitely. And you said something about the 12 step program and about addiction and that is running away from the actual issues and mm. either numbing your emotions or just being distracted with something else. Yeah. And the hard part is actually going through the therapy and actually facing those demons, facing those emotions, because yeah. they're hard to deal with and they're yeah. painful. And sometimes it's hard to accept all that hurt and pain. Yeah. How did you get to that point? To be able to talk about that. I've been to enough 12-step meetings now. And, and, I, and I was doing almost six days of therapy and rehab a, a week, you know, at, at mm-hmm. the, in the first three months. It was full on. It was just like it, to, to, to have run away from the, the feelings of childhood trauma, abandonment, depression, anxiety, to have shut that out for the last, you know, 15 years and then now to be like all right i'm gonna feel all of you i'm gonna feel all of this oh, i tell you i was i was a mess 
You know, I was a mess. But I love what my therapist says. She says, you can't heal what you don't feel. Mm. What did she say? She said, you were walking around bleeding out and you didn't even know it. You're walking around bleeding out for the last 15 years and you didn't even know it because you ignored you ignored everything that your soul was feeling and ran to other things. And she's like, now we can heal. And I love that. So it took a lot. There were times when it was just like some weeks, it's like, I'd rather not want to go. <laughs> I don't want to go. <laughs> and I, I, I used to have friends. I used to have friends just drive me there like, nah, you're going. And I was like, oh, man. But every time I went, it's just like you, you, you come in feeling like real heavy and just like like a complete loser. You walk out like chest chest up, you know, chin up. It was just like, yeah, we definitely can heal and we, we definitely do recover. So I'm still very much like I acknowledge I'm still very much in the early stages. I just got to 180 days last week, which is huge for me. And, you know, we're just taking it one day at a time. But here I am um, feeling to heal. Well, it's almost like having to go through the forest, right, to get to seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And, mm. you know, that takes a lot of work and a lot of bravery. So I really commend you for that. Mm. You know, I hope you could feel that because it does take a lot of work and breaking down walls, you know, that you've put up for so many years just as a yeah. means of protection. But it's funny how if we don't give respect to those emotions that, they show up in different ways that are yeah. unhealthy. And once you bring it to the light and say, you know, I see you and I'm going to talk with you today or however it comes out, you do feel like a lightened load, you know, yeah. like, like you let go and you've released it. So yeah. I'm really glad that that process is working for you and you have a great therapist because you know, that's the other thing is to find the, uh, the right person to really yeah. go through that whole, you know, process with you and you feel comfortable with their personality and you feel like, you know, maybe they understand you better than someone else. Yeah, no, this particular therapist, like I'm, it's, it's a good match. She really calls me out on stuff like that. She needs to call me out. <laughs> Walking out. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, like I think a lot of therapy for me is, is having to accept that every day that, yeah, I'm here because I, I need help. I'm here because it's become unmanageable. I'm here because I need someone to give me the right tools to manage this thing. So because I've, I've remained teachable, I think I've gotten the most out of it. On top of your childhood and the turbulence there, uh, you said that you also grew up in a kind of a rough neighborhood in mm. Sydney, Australia. How did that affect your life as you were growing up through your teens into young adulthood? Yeah, it's funny, hey, because when you think of Sydney, Australia, you think, how tough can that neighborhood be? Like beaches, kangaroos. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, um, it was really tough, actually. Uh, it was really tough because at that time when mum left, we couldn't afford the house anymore. So we moved to a really run-down neighborhood. And at that time, it was the, uh, the number one place for, for crime and, and, you know, just for, for a lot of bad things to happen. And it was, it was tough growing up. I remember being in high school. There were a lot of gangs in that area. And I remember being in high school and, and we, we were forced to, to carry weapons like in our uniform and get this, it was a private school. It was a private school at the time, but we were, we, and we had this uniform, we had jackets and, you know, and we used to hide like little weapons, like shanks, like under our, mm -hmm. and because it got really tough, you couldn't go home without being mugged. You couldn't go home without like someone stealing something off you or like, you know? And so it was, it got that tough. Plus at that time I was still trying to process mum leaving. So I grew up an angry, angry kid, but beneath and underneath all that anger was, was a kid that was just hurting. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I often tell the story to, to fans that message and the message they're like, why is it that you sing like that? Or how, how is it that your voice is like that? 
And I tell them the story of how I grew up in a really rough neighborhood where all my friends were influenced by hip-hop music and I really got into hip-hop and gangster rap um, because we were all angry. But at that time, all I was listening to was the music that mum loved. I was angry in a different way. I was listening to Whitney Houston and Joni Mitchell on my Discman MP3 players because I was hurting because mum left. So that neighborhood and that area that I grew up in actually really formed a lot of my music. Mm. Mm. I saw the beautiful tattoos that you have on your arm, but I could see where in a tough neighborhood that could make you look tougher, Mm. you know? Yeah. My first tattoo was 13 and I did that because I was angry at dad and he didn't find out about that tattoo until I was 21. I was walking around the house like with a singlet on and at that time I'd become so good at hiding that tattoo that I didn't even notice it It was there and he was like, what's that? And I was like, oh, it's a tattoo. He's like, and then he got angry. He's like, when did you get that? I was like, oh, almost eight years ago. <laughs> <laughs> what was the tattoo? Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> it's just a cross on my back. Well, you know, I saw it on your YouTube and yeah. I thought it was really great to see you singing with your mom and oh, yeah. also the, the encouragement and the happiness of yeah. her seeing you uh, finally getting to where you've wanted to go. And, yeah. you know, the fact that you share that love of music and something that you feel so deep inside is connected through your mom. Yeah. And she was a professional DJ, which she I think was. is really a cool thing for yeah. uh, a Filipino mom to do the DJ thing because it's not yeah. really expected. Yeah. I mean, I'm half Japanese and half Chinese. And I know from my experience, you know, things like music or entertainment is usually not encouraged <laughs> in yeah. the Asian culture. Oh, like I, I thought it was really cool, but I, I, was asking cool. Her, I, I, I was asking her for photos, but there was this one photo where she was carrying me on her lap and she was actually putting the label on her mixtape. And I was just like, this is cool. This is going to be an album cover one day. But uh, that's how she met my father. My father, there was like a disco in town and she was she was the DJ at the disco. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. Well, you know, one thing you said about your songwriting, you wrote that I write to stop the bleeding, sometimes to quiet the voices. Yeah. And I was wondering what kind of voices were in your head that you wanted to silence? Insecurity. Doubt. A lot of doubt. Because my love for music is so closely tied to mum, I think I also feel the same way about music that, wow, this is really big for me to say, but I feel like music's going to leave one day because it's so closely tied to mum that there's a part of me that, that feels mm-hmm. like the moment is fleeting, that the moment is passing, that it's something that I can't quite grasp. And in many ways, I'm still sort of grappling with that because I feel like that, that's, that brings about the doubt. Oh, what if I never make it? Or what if I can't live off this? Or what if I can't do this? And, and so I wanted to silence those voices that, you know, I can just write because I love it. I don't need to prove a point to anyone. I just write and sing because I love it. So, you know, when I say I'm quieting the voices, it's, it's a lot of voices that are of insecurity and self-doubt. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a very honest emotion, especially when you're so motivated to be this wonderful singer-songwriter. Well, now that you're on this better, healthier path, you're sort of a work in progress. And, you know, you see this great light at the end of the tunnel, How do you want to spend the next chapter of your life? Well, without planning too far ahead, I've actually booked myself a little holiday to celebrate 180 days clean. And I'm just going by myself. My friends are like, that's weird. I was like, is it though? Like it's, it's, I'm just celebrating me. Um, It's a little area in Australia called Tasmania. And I've literally Mm -hmm. just booked a four wheel drive and I'm doing a five-day road trip and it's just me soul searching and it's just me just I guess celebrating and I guess it's my way of saying hey you can draw validation from within you don't need to run you can live your best life without using like 
And so when you think about the next chapter of my life, that's that's the person I want to be. I want to be able to experience life in its full um, through the lens of recovery. Well, you know, that's a really good example, sort of giving yourself credit for the work that you've done. And yeah. I think oftentimes we're so busy with our lives that we 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 don't seem to have a problem pointing out flaws or mistakes that we've done or being mm. hard on ourselves. People tend to, tend to do that more often than saying, you know what, I want to celebrate the fact that I'm 180 days sober. I mean, yeah. that is a wonderful thing. And I hope you continue to do that because that is like something that you do to keep yourself happy and content and feeling good about yourself. So I'm glad that you're doing that and taking yeah. the time off too, because you know, sometimes overworking can be an issue, especially as a musician, because you you love it so much that sometimes you don't want to stray away from it. <laughs> you keep going and going, and that you know sometimes can lead to burnout. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I'm actually. I was telling my manager, I was just like, I'm actually looking forward to uh, not hearing from you guys in a while, <laughs> in the most loving way, obviously. <laughs> I agree there's there's power in celebrating full stop celebrate all the victories no matter how big no matter how small celebrate all of them and you are exactly right when you say it's so easy to spot out all the flaws and and my my brain is like that like I have the sort of brain where it's like I can get 100 compliments about my music and if there's one negative comment my brain's like boom that's the negative comment that's that's all we're thinking about today So it's quite huge, actually, to uh, flip that and say, now I'm going to focus on all the good and I'm going to celebrate on all the good. Mm -hmm. We we focus a lot on solutions on the podcast because I feel like it's one thing to share your story, but it's also really important to know what worked for you. You talked about therapy. Would like to say about what you've learned in therapy or maybe even what you've learned about yourself? Yeah. Yeah. One One of the biggest takeaways is that routine is everything. There's a saying in my 12-step meeting, and the saying is, uh, show me your routine and I'll show you your recovery. It's, it's, it's huge. So we're big on routine. And, and, and for me, meditation is a large part of my routine. I'm big on that, especially as a recovering addict. You know, we talked about escapism, but meditation puts you in the now, makes yourself aware, makes you aware of your thoughts, makes, grounds you. And for me, it's been so healing. You know, I use an app as a self-guided meditation and and it's really done wonders for me because it's it's allowed me to to feel yeah so that's huge and then like you know a, a good exercise routine you know like is is vital i think well you know that's important to bring up because musicians and creative people i'm going to speak for myself i mean i grew up in a creative household and we did not have a lot of routine and yeah establishing these routines once you get down good routines that are healthy for you it starts to become just part of your life and you don't Mm -hmm. have to think about it as much yes and you talked about an app now i want to know what the app is because on checkyourheadpodcast.com we have organizations Mm. apps clinics you know all free and affordable so when people do get into trouble and they want to find a solution, they can go on the website and just try different things. So what is this great app that you are using? Yeah, I use an app called Headspace. So I'm on that like every day. I'm on that every morning and every evening and it's just part of the routine. They have courses on that that you can do. You can do single meditations or courses that last for 30 days or or what have you. But I'm on one course in the evening that it's a five-minute gratitude meditation, practicing gratitude before I sleep, which has really, really helped. And then I have another course that I do in the morning, uh, but it's worked wonders, yeah. Really? Okay. Is there anything else that you would like to say about mental health or about your music? Yeah, that that we do recover. And there's not – how do I phrase this? Don't look for the light at the end of the tunnel. You can find the light within. Yeah. Next up, we have a leader on how to make friends and lasting connections, even during this pandemic. 
Our featured mental health expert is Kat Moore, USC's Director of Belonging, who will show us how to feel like we belong wherever we go. As someone who admits to have felt lonely the first 24 years of her life, Kat shares how a shy, introverted person can live a more friendly and social life. Kat also explains the acronym CLICK and the five components to make real, authentic relationships with others. Prior to COVID, it was over half of the population was experiencing loneliness. And for the first time, the younger generation was more lonely than any other. So this was even before COVID, a crisis. So I like to tell people that there's no such thing as loneliness with a capital L. That's that everyone is experiencing. What we have is millions of lonelinesses with a lowercase l. Meaning every single person experiencing loneliness is experiencing it for a host of reasons. And so it can be anything. It can be that you don't have access to a lot of different people. Maybe you live in a rural area where there's just not a lot of humans to choose from. You could have internalized a lot of negative self-esteem messages from people around you. They can make it difficult for you to think that you have anything to offer in a friendship or a relationship. And so you shut down. There's a ton of different reasons. It could be that you were never taught and modeled basic social skills. So there's a lot of different reasons people are experiencing loneliness, but we still know that we're all wired to connect and that meaningful connection is the number one predictor of our well-being across the lifespan. So how do we think about the really tiny details of each of our lives to see where we can start making meaningful connections where we are. And there's another concept called weak ties. And these are relationships that aren't necessarily like your best friend or your soulmate, but they're just people that you can say hi to and be friendly with. Those weak tie relationships that you can form in one day in a new city or while traveling those still register as positive and meaningful and have an impact on you. So it's not like either talk with your best friend or talk with no one. There's a huge variety of relationships that are possible and that enrich both people's lives. You know, a lot of musicians, no matter how much they run around on stage and break guitars and all those crazy stuff, a lot of them are very introverted. What were some of the things that a shy, introverted person can do to feel more comfortable socializing? Preaching to the choir, I also am an introvert and very shy. The first thing I would say is to accept that that's part of what you're experiencing and not get down on yourself by comparing yourself to someone else who seems like they're so at ease and so extroverted or whatever it is to just befriend that about yourself and know that it's there's nothing wrong with you. That's a way that you're wired. And to be kind with yourself, to ask, well, what would make me feel more comfortable? What kind of situations am I more comfortable in? So for example, a lot of introverts are more comfortable in small group settings. And so maybe don't go to the gigantic, loud, overwhelming party. Go to the dinner party. You know, so there can be ways that you can anticipate which scenarios are better suited to the kind of conversations or activities that you're comfortable with. Often, too, some people are very comfortable connecting by talking. Let's sit down and talk about our life. How are you doing? How are you feeling? That's overwhelming to other people. So sometimes people prefer to get to know uh, a group or a person by doing things together. And sometimes in a small group where there's less pressure one-on-one. So you can think about what are the things that help me feel comfortable? Do I like hiking? Do I like whatever it is? So that you can just put yourself in situations where you're most comfortable. People get a lot of anxiety about not being interesting, running out of questions. These sorts of things happens all the time. And the number one thing, you know, give yourself some time to prepare yourself before you go into any situation. Give yourself a little pep talk and tell yourself that you have value to offer the people that you're about to interact with. Not because you're smart, not because you're talented, but because you care about them. And once you think of yourself as a gift to the other people, that you could be there to listen to someone who desperately needs to be listened to that day. 
it kind of shifts the dynamic from it being about someone being able to reject you, which is the basic fear going on here, right? That we're going to be rejected. If you can shift it to being like, no, I'm going to listen to these people and discover who these people are, it automatically changes the dynamic. And people are desperate to be listened to. So if you can go into situations rather than thinking about what do I have to do or not do or say or not say and just say, I'm going to just show up and listen to people, that will pave the way. Yeah, I think that is really key because I know when I started out as a journalist, I thought, okay, I have the easy part. I get to develop the questions. The other person has to talk. And it's the same with the conversation, right? It's like if you focus your questions on the other person, they say that person will go away more than likely feeling like they had a wonderful conversation with you. Because there's... Yeah, there is a great feeling about, okay, wow, this person is interested in me and they want to get to know who I am. You also have something called the CLIC class. Can you tell me what that stands for? So CLIC is an acronym that stands for the five dimensions of making meaningful relationships. So you got to have each one of these in place if you're trying to forge meaningful relationships in your life. So Connecting as we are, authentically and in our real lives, listening first, investigating with curiosity, communicating kindness, and keeping in touch. So those are the elements that go into creating deep and meaningful relationships, whether they're friendships or with neighbors or coworkers. And so I created five-week workshops where people experiencing um, loneliness and disconnection. Now on Zoom, it had been in person. So I get 18-year-olds to 55-year-olds, and we're essentially sitting in a circle on Zoom, and we're sharing our social stories. What was friendship like for you growing up? What are your obstacles? What are your hopes? What are you looking for in a friend? What's really hard about this? What do you want to do next? And we're practicing all kinds of skills like making eye contact, like asking open-ended questions and solving problems together. So it's designed to really empower people wherever they're at on their social journey, but giving them an experience immediately of connection and belonging so that they don't feel like they have to figure it all out on their own. I'm partnering with different organizations to adapt Click so that their employees can have an opportunity to find meaningful connection, especially when people are working remotely. Yeah, that's really important, you know, to feel welcome and a sense of belonging where you work, which is such a, a big part of your life. I've realized that the fear of being alone is one of the most common ones, and it can affect the decisions in our life such as staying in an abusive relationship or one that's not right for us. And what are some of the things that we have to watch out for, you know, pitfalls, so that our loneliness doesn't create bad decisions in our life? The need to feel like you belong somewhere and to someone is the deepest need that we have. And so it makes sense that if that's not in place, if we're not assured of where we are and who we're tethered to, it can create absolutely crippling fear. And so that can drive us to stay in relationships or situations that we know is not healthy, but it still feels like, well, it's better than being alone because it can be traumatic to feel existentially alone in the world. And so one of the things that I encourage people to do is to think really kind of zoom out from whatever the relationship you're in and know that we need to have multiple kinds of relationships that we're in. And they don't all have to be super best friend, intense, lifelong relationships. But if you can even have one other person that you can be investing in, a friend, someone, a barista at the coffee shop, your grandma, it, uh, a neighbor. It really doesn't matter as long as the relationship is basically intact and healthy. Even having one other relationship can give you enough wiggle room to not feel like you're trapped, like all of your eggs are in one basket, because that can just be an almost impossible situation 
to find yourself in. So I just really encourage people to think broadly and think longer term so that you don't get stuck in a situation and it turn into a crisis. So kind of the more relationships we can have, you know, it can provide like a nest for us that if a major relationship needs to be pulled out because it's toxic, we don't feel like we're going to free fall. There's still something to catch us. And that was my experience. I was able to finally get out of the abusive situation I was in because I had been building this coffee shop network. Now, none of them were like best friend level relationships, but it was enough. They were friendly. They were consistent. They were available. And so that was enough to catch me so that I could get out of something toxic. Now, if I wouldn't have had that kind of social safety net, I don't know what would have happened. So to be creating at least one, of course, I'd recommend something like three to four anchor people that you could be investing in. Yeah, I could see where it's just important to have that support of a good circle of family and friends that you could rely on and depend on and vice versa, right? I mean, it's definitely always a two-way relationship when you have somebody really important in your life. Years ago, I heard something called warm lines. And we all hear about crisis lines when you're really having something extreme happening in your life. You need to talk about it. But a warm line is like, you know, I just want to talk with somebody. I just want to interact over the phone or by text or something. It's not a crisis, but it can be due to loneliness. I mean, what can you do in those cases when you're physically separated from people? Some people choose into isolated situations and some people have them thrust upon us. And I think all of us have experienced some version of isolation that was unwanted, you know, during COVID. And it can create empathy for us for people who are incarcerated, people who are in retirement homes who can't have access to as many people. So one of the things to think about, you have to develop the skills of focusing your mental energy, focusing your thought life. And there's a lot that can be done with mindfulness practices, for example, to start to pay attention to your breath and start to pay attention to your thoughts and your emotions and to start becoming aware of what you're experiencing so that you can start focusing your thought life in certain directions. One of the most amazing examples of this is the author, Victor Frankl, who was in a concentration camp, and he wrote a whole book called Man's Search for Meaning. And talking about the power that we still have that no one can take away from us, which is our power to choose what we're going to think about. And so he would hold forth in his mind visions of what he wanted to do and become with his life after he got out. And that's one of the things that gave him motivation to keep living and to keep thriving despite really the most horrific conditions that we can imagine. I think starting with your breath, starting with if you have a way to journal, a way to still create, right? You can compose in your mind the melodies. There's certain things that can't be taken away from you and being able to focus on on those in those periods can be really life-saving. It almost sounds like, I mean, not only these creative projects that you could have in your head and talking to yourself in your head, it's almost like having to build a better relationship with yourself because that's pretty much what you have. And, and I've heard that monks and People that are in these situations, that what they thought about and what they did in solitary confinement really helped save them. Solitude and silence are two spiritual practices or disciplines that almost every world religion or uh, culture has had some familiarity with where those are chosen into. The experience of loneliness is when you feel like your social needs aren't being met. But in solitude, that's something we can choose into as a practice that actually helps us collect ourselves, collect our thoughts, collect what our values are, collect our experiences, so that 
we can be more integrated as a person and understand our motives and our dreams. And it can be a very healthy thing to have that space. And then out of that space, we're more equipped to go into community and go into relationships more integrated. So if there's ways that we can understand even COVID as a very extended period of solitude, that can give us some sense of empowerment. Like, oh, I might never get this kind of opportunity again in my lifetime to have this much solitude. How can I use it to my benefit? And I've had a lot of students choose to take it that way and have seen incredible personal growth self-discovery come out of this period, even though, yes, they still miss their friends. Yes, they want to still go and hang out and go to concerts and all the things, but we can lean into a more ancient framework of solitude being incredibly helpful for our own relationship with ourselves, befriending ourselves, and knowing that that's also going to equip us um, to be a better friend in our relationships as well. A big thank you to our musical guest, Cap Carter, and our mental health expert, Cap Moore. For more information on Cap Carter, visit capcarter.com and follow Cap on his socials at Cap Carter and at Cap X Carter. And stay tuned for a clip of Cap Carter's single, Relapse, at the end of our episode. For more information on Cap Moore, visit cat-more.com and follow Cat on Facebook at Cat Moore Belonging and Instagram at cat underscore more underscore. Visit checkyourheadpodcast.com to find more mental health solutions and follow us on our socials at checkyourheadpodcast. So until next time, be brave, ask for help, and be persistent in finding the mental health that you need. You're the only drug I've ever known To leave me shackled up in bed Baby girl, I'm coming Check Your Head Podcast is kindly supported and partnered with Sweet Relief Musicians Fund, DBSA San Gabriel Valley, Earshot Media, and Lemon Tree Studios in Los Angeles. Visit CheckYourHeadPodcast.com where we have over 100 solutions for mental help. Be our friends on social media at Check Your Head Podcast. Watch us on YouTube and support us with a kind donation on CheckYourHeadPodcast.com. Check Your Head Podcast is sponsored by a 501c3 nonprofit with all donations being tax deductible. Thank you for your support and thank you for listening. <laughs>